0: And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your week's been good. I'm looking forward to the weekend, but um, we've got a ways to go before the weekend kicks in because I have a dynamic show for you today. And I'm excited to bring on our guest. Uh, Natasha Crane is my guest, and she is just came out with her fourth book. It's called Faithfully Different Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. So we are definitely living in an increasingly secular society, and those who have a strong biblical worldview, guess what? I think we're kind of in the shrinking minority. So um, Natasha uh, Natasha put it this way, we are in a culture where feelings are the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guess. That's an interesting and provocative uh, sentence. Uh, Natasha, how's your week been?
2: It's going well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. When did your book get released? It's out now, but when did it get released?
2: Yeah, it just came out on Tuesday.
0: So I assume you had a busy week.
2: It has been a busy week. Indeed it has. I'm looking forward to the weekend also. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad that you uh, could make time for us. I see that uh, you've got a, a bunch of great endorsements for your book, and it's a great topic because it's uh, so relevant right now today. Um So thank you for uh, making time today in your busy week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'd love to jump in and just find out a little bit about um, Christians believe that there are a majority group in America. Uh, Maybe that's not the case, huh?
2: Right. So you have to kind of look into the data a little bit to figure out what's going on, because it's not necessarily obvious right away. But what researchers have found uh, at the Pew Forum, and they're kind of the the big institution that does a lot of this tracking of religious trends in America. And what they found, according to their most recent survey, is that about 65 percent of Americans, if you ask them how they identify themselves, you know, atheist, agnostic, Mormon, Jewish, Christian, whatever the case may be, Um, 65% will say, I'm a Christian. Mm. So this is interesting because on the surface, it would seem that, wait a second, the majority of Americans are Christians. But all we can really say from that is that the majority or actually almost two-thirds of people identify themselves as Christians. So they take on that label, but it doesn't really tell you anything about what they actually believe. What is their worldview? How do they see all of reality? And so you have to look to other research to sort of tease that out. And that research comes out of Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center uh, from Director George Barna. And what they have found is that when you really dig into it, and they use dozens of questions to get to this, About 6% of Americans have what would be considered a functioning biblical worldview. In in other words, they're adhering to the basic truths as taught in the Bible and seeking to live their lives in accordance with that. So there's this giant gap between 65% taking on the Christian label, so to speak, versus the 6% who actually have the biblical worldview that one might assume is consistent with that kind of label. So yeah, it's, it's a really eye-opening statistic when you, when you get into it. And it also explains why so many of us as Christians who do seek to have a biblical worldview don't feel like 65% of America is Christian. So we have those feelings, and we can see that it doesn't seem like that as a culture, but the data really puts legs on it and says, well, here's why, here's what's going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Natasha, why is secularism uh, so compelling even for Christians?
2: Yeah, that's a really important question, because it, theoretically, we could be this little tiny minority that's surrounded by a dominant worldview that's not that attractive to us, that we don't get sucked into. Right. But that's actually not the case. That's not what we find, because a lot of Christians are blending in secular ideas into their biblical worldview, which is really what the book is about. But when you understand what secularism is, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Ultimately, what it means to be secular, whether you're a country or a person, is that you don't defer to the authority of a given religion or God in your life. So ultimately, it comes back to you. You're the authority. Each person, they have self-authority rather than for a biblical Christian. the, The authority is God and through his word, his inspired and authoritative word of God. So it's all about the authority of the self. Well, the Bible tells us why that's so compelling to us, because all of us in our fallen nature want to resort to the authority of the self. This is a worldview that is just, perfectly made to attract people based on our human nature, given what the Bible tells us. We all want to go our own way. We all want to resort to the authority of the self. So even as Christians, this can be a temptation. When we start to look at people who are saying, well, you should go with your feelings, or mm-hmm. you know, "You just want to be happy, that's what's important. All these kind of secular ideas, they sound good, and they sound compelling to us because of our fallen nature, but they're very much opposed to an actual biblical worldview and how we should be living if we're living for the Lord.
0: Great answer. Um, What would you say are the most significant uh, pressures that you're seeing uh, Christians and people of faith being influenced by?
2: That, that's a tough question because there are so many, and I actually go through, there are nine, nine chapters out of the 12 in the book hit on individual pressures in terms of cancel culture and virtue signaling and evangelism. There are all kinds of individual pressures, but I do think that just that underlying framework that we've been hitting on here about feelings being the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, God is the ultimate guest, those tenets, I think, are really the things that are pressuring Christians in every area of their lives and you know you see especially with the feelings based mentality um you see that everywhere you see that everything says follow your heart and a lot of christians think they need to follow their heart but the bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things so we have to be careful in what sounds good in secular culture and what's actually good, according to the Bible. But we we get sucked into these these, uh, ways of thinking way more than we actually realize. Same thing with judging. You know, secular culture says all the time, don't judge. Who are you to judge? You shouldn't be judging me, because that comes back to the authority of the self, right? You have no right to judge me. And so Christians start thinking, well, yeah, I shouldn't be judging either. But the Bible calls us to judge, just to not judge hypocritically, Mm -hmm. but to discern between what's right and wrong and true and false. So I think those four tenets really summarize the greatest underlying worldview pressure that Christians are facing today. And it just manifests itself in a lot of different ways that I tease out in the
0: book. Natasha Crane is my guest. She's written a book called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. So, uh, Natasha is that, is that a family name? Just curious. Uh,
2: the name, the first name Natasha. Yeah. Uh, no, no. My mom was reading War and Peace, and she liked <laughs> the name. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not Russian. My mom's actually from France, but she just liked the name. So uh, there I go. Okay, great
0: name. <laughs> All right. Now, in Thank your book, you can you you contrast progressive Christianity with the historic Christian faith, and conclude that progressive Christianity is ultimately a, a secular pressure coming from within the Church. Can you explain what progressive Christianity is and how you came to that conclusion?
2: Yeah, and that sounds a little counterintuitive first, that there's a secular pressure from within the wider Church, but it's important to understand, first of all, what what is progressive Christianity? So it can be hard to define, because people who would identify as progressive Christians will have any number of beliefs. But the reason that they'll have any number of beliefs is that what unites them is they typically do not see the Bible as the inspired and authoritative Word of God. Mm-hmm. They will see it as sort of man's um, best ideas, maybe, about God over time, or maybe not even best ideas, but some of man's ideas about over about God over time, but not necessarily God's truth that will be true for all of time. So there's a big difference in how someone sees the Bible. So obviously, if your view of the Bible is not is that it's not authoritative and entirely true and accurate— You're going to be picking and choosing what you believe to be true from that, and you're going to come up with many different beliefs, which is why it's hard to pin down what progressive Christians believe. But here's the thing. Ultimately, if you're not looking to God as your authority, that he has revealed himself in this authoritative way through Mm -hmm. the Bible— ultimately, you've just put yourself in charge again. Ultimately, your authority is you, and you're right back at the same place as someone who's secular and irreligious. You're right back in that same place of saying, I'm going to be the determiner of what is true. You might have a maybe more appreciation for Jesus than somebody who's purely irreligious, but ultimately, you are going to be secular in your view because you are deferring to the authority of only yourself. And so it is a pressure from within the church, within people who would identify as being Christians, because it's ultimately a pressure to come back to yourself as the arbiter of truth.
0: Oh, boy. All right. I know people are talking about deconstructing their faith, and that's kind of a buzzword. I don't know how long that's been around, but tell me what is deconstruction, and and why do you think it's so appealing and, and so dangerous?
2: So deconstruction is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and people will define it in all kinds of different ways. But generally speaking, when someone is saying that they're deconstructing, it means that they are walking away from any kind of belief in the Bible as being authoritatively true. And so usually what that means is that they're deconstructing into more of a progressive Christian view. Most of the time, if someone is completely abandoning any notion of faith, they're going to become an atheist or agnostic. They'll say that they've deconverted, so the language is a little bit different. So it's kind of a, a buzzword to say I'm deconstructing, meaning, well, I'm probably still going to have some kind of Christian label, but I'm not any longer going to look to the Bible as authoritatively true. And so it's sort of a, uh, a progressive Christian indicator, if you will. And this is very appealing for the same reason that we talked about earlier, that ultimately, if people are attracted to wanting to be their own authority on what's true and what's morally right and wrong, and, and what's true about all of reality, if that's appealing, then when you see somebody else saying, well, I'm deconstructing, I'm taking the time to kind of walk away oh. to what I think is true. Well, of course, that's going to be compelling to us, too. And what I talk about in the book is that a lot of times when especially well-known people, celebrities, musicians who are known to be Christians, when they make some kind of public announcement that they're, quote-unquote, deconstructing, and they talk about how they're going through this, a lot of times it's crafted very specifically to be sort of a reverse testimony instead of, here's what I experienced, and so I'm coming to Jesus, and you should, too. It's, Here's why you should walk away from yeah. these harmful beliefs that so many evangelical Christians have today. Here's why you need to do what I did. And they put this kind of glorified term on it of deconstruction. And the way that it's, it's usually written or it's said is that, you know, they had all these questions. They realized they could no longer be a Christian because of reasons X, Y, and Z. No one was answering their questions. And then there's a happy ending, and now I'm happier than ever. And so that's very compelling to people and is sort of dangerous because if you're not well-grounded in a biblical worldview and understanding why these secular tenets that we talked about earlier are, are not consistent with what you should believe, then it's very tempting to look at that and say, oh, well, that person's happy now. They say they're happy. They're at peace. Maybe you're not feeling happiness in your life or you're not totally at peace. And so you look at that and you say, well, maybe they have something that I don't. Maybe I I should be considering deconstructing my faith as well. So in that in chapter in the book where I talk about this, I just try to walk people through 10 different uh, ways of really working through doubt in a more truth-seeking way. And that's not to say that everyone who has so-called deconstructed wasn't seeking truth, but these ideas are more to just get people to really think about, okay, how do you evaluate your faith from a reasonable, logical position rather than just saying, oh, I want to follow down this path or lots of people are doing this. And so I'm hoping that that will be helpful to people as they walk through the doubts that they have.
0: Mm-hmm. Natasha, they almost make the word deconstruct deconstruction sound like hip and trendy right that's very dangerous yeah let me take a break yeah natasha crane is my guest her book is faithfully different regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture when i come back i want to ask her the difference between secular social justice and biblical justice that's all next
1: You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: Natasha Crane is my guest. She's written a book called Faithfully Different. She lives in Southern California. I I would love for you to uh, talk about the difference between secular social justice and biblical justice. And and tell us why it's so important for believers to understand the difference.
2: Yeah, so that's a big, big subject. That's something we can talk about for a long, long I time. Know. So I'll try to break down just a few key points on this. But there is a huge difference between secular social justice and biblical concept of justice. And we've seen a lot of Christians in the last couple of years With these topics coming up a lot more frequently, we've seen a lot of Christians getting pulled into a lot of secular ways of thinking about this. So to break it down and to help people kind of think about, well, what are the points of differentiation? How are these things really different? I give three questions in my chapter on this that really highlight those differences. The first one is, why are things the way they are? So if you compare that answer from a biblical perspective and a secular social justice perspective, you'll see that we would have vastly different answers to that question. And that's kind of the starting point for everything, that from a biblical perspective, things are the way they are, meaning there is oppression, that there, there is injustice in the world. There is marginalization of people. Yes, all these things are true, and we all agree on that. So that's a point of agreement between everyone who's concerned about justice. But when we say, well, why are things the way they are? From a biblical perspective, it's because of sin. There's sin in the world, and because of sin, there's going to be injustice. And we define justice and injustice based on God's character, based on God himself. But from a secular social justice perspective, this is mostly based on what's called critical theory, which is a very complex, academic theory that has led to a whole family of theories, and you've probably heard of some of these, like critical race theory, for example, feminist theory, queer theory, uh, post-colonial theory. It kind of manifests itself in all these different ways, but there is one sort of overarching lens that's consistent between them that you can identify this family of theories with, and that's that everyone is divided into groups of oppressors and oppressed. So the people who are oppressed in the society are, according to this theory, oppressed because of social structures that are empowering the oppressors. Mm -hmm. So there are certain norms that have been in place through all this time that in society has allowed this oppression to take place. So why are things the way they are, according to these theories? Because of oppressive social structures. And when you take it from these two perspectives of, okay, we have sin, and then we have oppressive social structures, and then you ask the question, okay, number two, how should things ultimately be? Well, from a biblical perspective, we're never going to have a utopia on earth because of sin. So yes, we should be fighting to right the injustice as we can. We're absolutely called to do that as Christians, but we're not working toward perfection on earth. Whereas from a secular social justice perspective, they're ultimately working to right all oppression by overturning and having a revolution to get rid of the existing social structures in place that are blamed for everything in the first place. That's why you see this call for revolution of throwing out every way that our society has been structured that have structured that have led to this place where oppression takes place. So if you have totally different answers to those two questions, why are things the way they are and how should things ultimately be? It goes without saying that the third question, well, how do we get from point A to point B, will be completely different Mm -hmm. from those two perspectives. And so that's really what I kind of work through in, in more depth in that chapter of just showing that our answers are completely different to these and they're also opposed, they're they're not going to be the same. Critical theory and this whole idea that everyone can be in, in an oppressor or oppressed group according to their group identity is just not a biblical a biblical concept at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Natasha Crane is my guest. Her book is Faithfully Different: Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Speaking of secular culture, I'm thinking of cancel culture. Talk about how that uh, how Christians should respond and and what kind of Uh, risk does this pose to believers today?
2: Well, it's very tempting as a Christian to look around at all these people getting canceled in sort of the, the 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 headlines and all the media that we hear about people who are getting removed from their platforms because they say something that's not okay, according to the popular consensus of secular culture. It's easy to look at that and say, well, I'm going to be quiet in my personal life because I don't want to be canceled by friends. I don't want to be canceled at work. I don't want to be canceled in all these ways. But as Christians, we have to understand that We are called to speak truth in grace and love, of course, but we are called to speak truth whether someone responds to that positively or not. We can't get into a habit of thinking, if someone doesn't like what I'm saying, that I must be doing something wrong, that I must be hateful, or I must be mean, or I must be unloving, or any of those kinds of things. We can't judge the truth of what we're saying by people's response, and that's so incredibly important to understand because if you fall into that trap, you're going to always be silent. And that is maybe going to make you more okay with the world, but it's going to take you further away from what God is calling you to do. So we can't be afraid of cancel culture. We can't let it affect us. This culture needs truth. It needs light more than ever. And we have to be willing to stand up and speak truth while knowing that a lot of people aren't going to like it. And we very well may be canceled out of people's lives, but we have to be willing to do that as faithful Christians.
0: Yeah. We have seen secularism become pretty mainstream pretty fast in a pretty short amount of time. Do you think that America will will be turning back to more traditional values? I mean, let's try to be hopeful here.
2: <laughs> well, I would like to, I would like to think that it's it's a possibility. Of course, everything is possible with God, but I would say personally that I don't see that happening because this is something that's actually been happening over quite a long time. Um, it, researchers estimate that in the last 25 years, the percent of people in America who hold a biblical worldview has decreased by half. So we're looking at 50% decrease over 25 years. This has been happening for a while. But I think the reason it's become so apparent so fast lately is that we have maybe discarded the doctrines of Christianity, the core Christian beliefs over time, but society overwhelmingly held on to the values that were consistent with a biblical worldview, even if they didn't hold the actual doctrine. So they still valued marriage. They still valued human life. They still valued the family, things that have been consistent with biblical Christianity. But today, sort of suddenly, they're now discarding the hangover of those Christian values as well. And so now it becomes apparent to people like it never has before that, oh, wait a second, This isn't a Christian society anymore. Now people are much more hostile toward Christian views. And so it hasn't happened fast, but it's become more obvious very quickly recently as those values get discarded. And now we have so many people who neither hold to Christian doctrine nor to Christian values.
0: Mm -hmm. Just have a minute left, Natasha. You've been a wonderful guest. Uh, Maybe give some encouragement for believers who feel discouraged by this ongoing this ongoing culture wars that are happening,
2: yeah I, I would say Jesus told us that it would be like this I mean he tells us that the world is going to hate us that the that the world hated him and will hate us, and so I think we have to take that to heart, maybe if it's been easier for us in the past, we can look at that and we can say, okay, well, maybe it didn't shine the light on what we needed to do so much, but praise the Lord that now we're in a position where We really have the opportunity to be salt and light in culture and a culture that desperately needs it. And now that we are seen more distinctively as Christians, because culture is so vastly different, it does give us a different—it does give us, rather, an opportunity to stand up and say, this is what Christians believe, and here's the evidence for the truth of Christianity. There's a need for apologetics, how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity, and we can do that. We have amazing opportunities to be light in this culture just as we're called to. Mm-hmm. So it is a challenge but it's also an opportunity.
0: Natasha, congratulations on your new book. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, Natasha Crane has been my guest. Her book is Faithfully Different: Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
1: are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: It's pretty safe to say that uh, the workplace has really changed, especially in the last couple of years. And because work has people at it, Um, you're going to be subject to stress and of course stress can turn into something that might be a fractured relationship. And then there's productivity is going to get lost. Time is going to be wasted and there's going to be tensions all over the place. And then cooperation is less and soon your workplace might become toxic and business could suffer. So just, we're going to say up front, conflict because people are involved is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be crippling, which I love that, uh, that piece of encouraging news already. Dr. Paul White's joining me. He's written a book with Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Jennifer Thomas called making things right at work, Increase teamwork, resolve conflict and build trust. It's a number one New York times, uh, bestseller. Paul, nice to have you here.
3: Thank you, Bill. Glad to be with you.
0: Yeah. So no doubt the work uh, environment has changed dramatically in the last couple of years for sure. Um, and maybe for for permanent, huh?
3: Yeah, maybe. I, I think so to some degree. Uh, I think we're going to keep uh, some level of remote and hybrid working going uh, forward. So that's something we've got to get used to.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about conflict at work. It's probably impossible to have a conflict-free workplace, isn't
3: it? Well, sort of. Uh, it, you know, there are some people that are really good at avoiding conflict, uh, and so you have that, but uh, in, in reality, no. You, we're always going to have some kind of conflict because, like you said, I mean, we're people, and it involves the issue of communication and miscommunication, misunderstanding, um, and making mistakes, which we all do, and so it, it happens. And in fact, uh, one research study showed that. Conflict happens so much that it actually uh, takes two hours a week of the average worker's time, either that they're directly in conflict or they're managing and dealing with somebody else's conflict. So that's, you know, a day, a month that that we're spending on it.
0: That is a lot of time. What would you uh, consider, Paul, some examples of the most common conflicts that people experience in the workplace?
3: You know, I think just like any relationship, the the most uh, common source is just miscommunication that we misunderstand one another. Uh, there's a lack of clarity, and uh, as a result, we react to it. I mean, it could be as simple as saying you know, with a teammate, you know, did you call, you know, Mrs. Smith? And they said, No, I thought you were going to call. Her. And I said, I, you know, and you <laughs> you have that kind of thing. And then and the other part that I think is actually happening more and more because of the Changes in our society is uh, conflicts or even just tension that come from uh, sort of different perspectives on situations and differing expectations. So it could be like you had some kind of uh, client event, and you know some people think it went really well uh, on your team, and and you think it, you know it could have been better, <laughs> and you talk about it and. You know, you had different ideas of what it should be, and so it's not that anybody's wrong necessarily, uh, but just that you really are viewing it differently, and then that creates some tension in uh, working together uh, on an ongoing basis.
0: Mm -hmm. How would would you say people are most offended, are are most often offended in the workplace?
3: Well, you know, uh, Dr. Chapman and I wrote the, the five languages of appreciation in the workplace where we... Uh, applied the five love languages to work-based relationships. And an interesting finding along the way is that we found that people are most easily offended in the language that's important to them uh, from an appreciation point of view. It's sort of like uh, a mode of communication if you're a you have a radio receiver, you get both positive and negative messages if you have a TV receiver and so forth. Well, same thing in the language of appreciation. If words is your primary way you feel appreciated, that's also the language that you're more sensitive to being offended. and um the way that looks for people with words is that it doesn't take too much corrective feedback to get their attention, um, whereas maybe a quality time or an active service person, it takes more. Um, similarly, in, if somebody has quality time as their appreciation language, if uh, you don't invite them to go out to lunch with the team, uh, um, you know they could be uh, feel slighted uh, by that. So it's, it's sort of the flip side of a person's language of appreciation.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul White is my guest, and he's written a book called "Making Things Right at Work: Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust." Paul, I'm kind of curious about when people have both a professional and a personal relationship at work. I think oftentimes those kind of go side by side. Uh, and then, how do you manage both of those? For example, if if we work together, and and I say to you, "Hey, Paul, I heard you went golfing Saturday. How'd you do?" And you say, "I <laughs> shot 105," and I said. Uh, the personal side of me might say, I didn't know you were such a hack. Right. And you might laugh. But if right. if I'm just being the professional, I don't think I say that to you because I don't want to offend you.
3: Right. And, and that's, you know, the challenge of all kinds of relationships. I grew up in the context of family-owned business and did a lot of consulting uh, with family-owned businesses about working together and then passing it across. So you have uh that dynamic you have working with friends and you know there's a sort of a concept of keeping clear what hat you have on when you're talking to one another uh, so that if you're talking as the manager to an employee there's a different sort of style and protocol for how you talk making decisions and so forth whereas if the same two people are friends uh you got to remember okay we're talking about you know The football game this weekend, and it's okay to to chide each other, but it's probably not wise to do that with your employee uh, and or employer. So uh, we have to keep sort of straight in our head, you know, what's the role I'm in here, and we get into trouble when we switch back and forth within one conversation, which can happen, Um, and then people take offense because you talk to them um, as you know sort of a buddy when Mm -hmm. they're also your manager. So.
0: yeah yeah talk about negative assumptions about people and how that can be one of the bigger dangers in the workplace
3: yeah absolutely. you know um we tend to infer motivation uh, from actions, and it's really dangerous because we don't hardly even know what our own motives are lots of times, so we have mixed motives and it can really create problems where <laughs> excuse me, a person is just. Talking, maybe you had a, a, a you know a social event that you threw, and you're having a follow-up committee meeting about it, and one of the people says, you know, uh, this went well, you know, the the food was okay. But, you know, what could we do better next time? And if you were in charge of that part, you could say, you know, are they trying to throw me under the bus here and, you know, take over and so forth, when in actuality, maybe they're just wanting to make it better next time. And so we really have to be careful. And I think this is where trust um, in relationships uh, helps. When you trust another person and their motives, it makes things go more smoothly and, you it all sort of ties into appreciation as well as when we feel valued by somebody we're less likely to attribute negative motives to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Paul, I think I'm, I think of this word triangulate where if, there, if I have a problem with person A, instead of going to person A, I go to person B and say, I can't mm-hmm. believe all this trouble I'm having with person A. So would you consider that to be like some kind of indirect communication and, and how does that cause problems in the workplace?
3: Well, Bill, you're you're right on target. Um, You know, uh, over the past 10 years, I've gone around the country and spoken about appreciation and positive things in the workplace, and that breaks. I'll have people come up and tell me how nasty their workplace is and what a jerk their boss is and wound up doing research and wrote with Dr. Chapman a book on toxic workplaces, and we found that one of the key components of a toxic workplace is indirect communication um, because, Essentially, and there's lots of different types. There's the kind where you're sort of hinting at a message But you don't really say it and you're hoping that they catch the the Inference and most of the time at least us guys don't get that um, There's also the type of thing where you go around somebody uh, Versus asking them for say permission or whatever because you don't think you're gonna get the answer that you want so you go around them or Talking about somebody, I'm amazed the number of times when I work with workplaces how often they raise the issue of gossip as just being a major issue. And the challenge and problem is is that when you're going around or using a messenger, if the other person says, "Well, you know, how did that happen?" or "What you know?" ask you a, a question about the circumstance the messenger often doesn't know. Uh, and so it gets stuck in being able to solve that. And also, you know, we've heard the message uh, of, you know, shoot the messenger. You know, you hear something and you get mad about the message, but you let the messenger know, and it's not really the appropriate person. This indirect communication uh, is a major cause of all kinds of problems in the workplace. And, you know, as Christians we talk about speaking the truth in love, if we you know go directly to the person and uh, have their interests at heart as well as our own you know things will go well.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul White is my guest and he's written a book uh, called Making Things Right at Work Increase Teamwork Resolve Conflict and Build Trust. All right Paul so let's say we have messed up so how do you repair a relationship when you've messed up?
3: Oh you just leave. No? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's what a lot of people do, right? Uh or I they know they started. do. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you messed up and and what we've done is so this book, uh, as well as our other books were written not from an overtly Christian perspective so they could be used in the secular workplace and so and they are used in the government agencies and military and all kinds of places. Um and so you know, apologizing is not a real big deal in the secular marketplace. In fact, my son is uh, in leadership as a chaplain in the Army, and I passed the book by him, and he said, uh, you know, just apologizing doesn't happen very often because people don't admit that they're wrong uh, or they right. messed up. Um, and so, you know, really, we we sort of tried to soften the message a little bit and say, you know, we mess up, we make mistakes, and what do you do? Well, you know, the first thing to do is to try to express regret about it. It's like, I'm sorry that this happened, and it created, you know, that problem for you that uh, you got, you know, sort of in trouble with the customer uh, when it wasn't really you that did anything. Um, and the second step, and these come from the five languages of apology that Dr. Chad and Dr. Thomas wrote together. But the second step is accepting responsibility and just saying, you know, I messed up. I was wrong. I, I, I'm sorry about that. And and there's further steps you could take, but I think for most of us, we need to just work on the first two. <laughs> you know, that, um, yeah, man, I see how that really created problems for you, and I am sorry about that. And, you know, I want to do better. I, I need to... to correct how I handled that, that I shouldn't have cc'd everybody on the email criticizing you, whatever it might be. Um, so part of it is just owning up and taking responsibility. If we as followers of Christ do that, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different because it, it, it rarely happens uh, in the general culture.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a break, though, uh, Paul. But when I come back, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about apology languages. And, and how they can relate in the work environment. Because when you say apology is good, I want to hear about these apology languages and how best to do it in a work environment. Dr. Paul White is my guest. He's a psychologist, he's an author and speaker. He has uh, uh, consulted with a huge variety of organizations, including Microsoft and the US Air Force um, and Princeton University. And he, along with Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Jennifer Thomas, has written a book uh, inti- entitled "Making Things Right at Work: Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust." We'll be right back with Paul and his team.
1: to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope and Clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: I'm back with author and speaker Dr. Paul White. He's written a book with Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas called Making Things Right at Work. I'm on page 87 of his book and it says, <laughs> get him on the Bill Arnold show. Wait, that's my handwriting. Uh, let's see. It says, uh, we talk to uh, clients and friends in the business world about the idea of apologizing in the workplace. We get mixed reactions. Some are interested and supportive. Really? That is so needed. Others aren't so sure what to think. Wow, I would have never thought of trying to go there at work. And the final group thinks we're crazy. Are you kidding? That's not even a consideration in the places where I've worked. What is, uh, Paul, the, the appropriate apology languages in the workplace?
3: The way you framed it because really apologizing is situation specific, right? So there's a difference between somebody in the grocery store that I don't know and runs into my cart as we go around a corner and, you know, crashes me and so forth, you know, you can say, I'm sorry, whatever. That There's a different level of apology versus, you know, a colleague in your office that you all were emailing about a mistake um that they made and you wind up forwarding it to uh, their supervisor as well as a number of other people mm-hmm. um you know so there's both sort of the kind of relationship and also sort of the level of offense so and that's why you know I tend to think about these sort of in steps or stages i mean the first is what like we mentioned expressing regret you know i'm sorry that i did that um and you know Wow, didn't didn't mean to to create that problem for you. Secondly, is to accept responsibility. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Third is the sort of stepping it up to make restitution or offer to make restitution. It's like you know what can I do to make this right? You know, I shouldn't have sent that out, um, but I did. And is there something I could do to make up for it? Fourth. Um, language or step is really planned change communicating and say you know next time I'm gonna pass this um, email by you before I send it on to anybody else and then the last one that may or may not be appropriate is requesting forgiveness and you know um, and I and I say may or may not because uh, and we talk about forgiveness in the book as letting things go because forgiveness in the secular workplace. Uh, can be a real reactive kind of word because for some people um, who maybe grew up in the Catholic tradition, it's just about, you know, going to confession and, uh, you know, um, or for uh, evangelical Christians, it might be hearken to, you know, having given your life to Christ and asking him to that there's a lot of sort of reactivity to it. So talking more about letting things go in the sense of not holding grudges against people and being able to move on in your relationship with them.
0: Hmm, That's really interesting. Um, what happens when, okay, you're trying to let go of some past hurts, but how do you rebuild trust if there's been a fracture in the workplace?
3: Critical piece, And our culture is really bad, as we can tell in the general marketplace right now, about trust. Uh, cause, partly because we misunderstand it and miscommunicate about it. We talk about trust as being an all-or-nothing kind of thing. Either I trust them or I don't, which is not true. I mean, usually there's some continuum or level that we're on. And secondly, trust also is situation-specific. So, for example, let's say I'm up there visiting you in Minneapolis, and you and, um, I offer to pick you up at the airport, uh, and, you know, you should trust me to do that. I can drive and get around. But you should not trust me to do open-heart surgery because that's not, I don't do that, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have the ability to do that. And so trust is really around competence. Can the person actually do that? Do they have skills? Secondly, there's an issue of character. Do they consider my interest as well as their own. And this is really important in the workplace. Otherwise, you feel like people are manipulating you. Um, And then consistency. I mean, somebody may be competent and may have good intent. But if they don't show up or don't get the work done in time, then you tend to not trust them to be able to finish the project. And I think one of the things we need to do is if we're either having a hard time trusting somebody else or feel like somebody doesn't trust us, to try to identify which of those areas, you know, whether it's competence, character, consistency, and develop a plan to work on that. Um, And and over time, you can slowly rebuild that. But it's helpful to sort of use the phrase, I don't trust them or they don't trust me to X, Y, or Z, to make it specific versus they don't trust me, period. Well, that's probably not true. But there's a specific situation where uh they may be having struggles in, in trusting you, and you want to
0: work on that specific area. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul White is my guest uh, paul what are as we talk about um, not trusting people in the workplace what are what are some of the most common reasons people don't trust others in the workplace?
3: Well, um, because we haven't shown ourselves to be trustworthy. I mean, sometimes, you know, we mess up and we miss getting something done uh, on time. Sometimes it's it's their own background that maybe in a prior job or situation, they really sort of got taken advantage of by a manager or supervisor, and they've sort of generalized that to all managers that they just don't trust managers now. And so we're sort of, you know, Labeled with that, even though it wasn't us. Um, and and lots of times people have had personal life histories where um, you know they've had tough lives, and people have repeatedly not fallen through on promises or agreements made. and so they just have uh, a suspicious approach to life because they sort of have to live through that. And so sometimes we need to be. Gracious! I mean, sometimes it is related to us, but other times it's uh, just part of their life history, and we have to work at building trust with them one on one as a person to person.
0: Yeah, Paul, I love your cheat sheet at the back of the book. Uh, that's worth the price of the book alone. Things not to say when apologizing at work, and things to say when apologizing at work.
3: Yeah, I love probably, the list you compiled. Yeah, well. It, Jennifer did that list. I'll give her credit for that. But I know one of the main ones is you don't want to end apology with the word but um, and then then keep going and give an excuse uh, uh, because that just negates it totally. So sometimes uh, and that happens even when we're giving appreciation. It's sort of like, man, I really liked the fact that you got your report in on time. But it'd be nice if you spelled it correctly next time. You know, <laughs> I mean, it sort of, it right. sort of, undercuts it. So we've, that word, but B U T, can really create uh, and uh, undercut good intention. But uh, it goes, it goes south on us.
0: I've always had the last sentence check of every email I send, I get my email ready to send. And I, I think to myself, can I take out the last sentence? Cause sometimes you do, uh, harm in the last sentence for that yeah. very reason, because you've got that, but you, you could have spelt it right.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So what do you, I'm curious, what do you see as the future of, of work in America?
3: You know, I, I get to travel around and work with all different kinds of workplaces in industries from, schools to churches to government agencies military medical all that and uh, i just think that we are going to hang on to remote employees to some degree uh, and sort of in a hybrid model and that what that means is we have to learn and structure how to communicate well remotely and so uh, there's that part and the other part is You know, when COVID hit, my team and I sort of went to work, and we developed an appreciation kit for remote teams. uh, Because communicating appreciation uh, um, remotely is different than in person. And one of the things that we know, we actually did research on people who were dealing well with working remotely and those who were struggling emotionally. And one of the key factors is staying connected at a personal level with your colleagues. more and more younger employees are more uh, interested in their colleagues and their peer relationships than they are with their supervisor. And most, you know, remote communication, Zoom and so forth, meetings are about work, They're, which they should be, right? Tasks, mm-hmm. projects, budgets, and all that. But we ha- leave out sort of that pre and post sort of gather and talk about the weekend or the game or how your kids are doing. And so it becomes very sort of uh, mechanical. And it's just, you know, you're just talking about getting work done. And we forget that people are people. Employees are people. And we got to really be proactive in staying connected with one another as a person. Um, because we're social beings, God made us that way. And uh, otherwise, the, the turnover rate, you might as well just install a revolving door in your front door. I mean, it's just if, they, if firms and, and leaders don't pay attention to that, they're really going to have a problem.
0: Hmm. Paul, so interesting. I wish you had more time. I'd love to have you back on because I, I think if we open the phone lines up and let people ask questions, we, we would be extremely helpful to the listeners. I'd be glad to do that. Well, I would appreciate it if you would we'll get you back on the schedule and I would love to uh, continue this conversation. Dr. Paul Whitespen, my guest. His book is called Making Things Right at Work: Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. Paul, have a great rest of the evening.
3: Great. Thanks so much,
0: Bill. You bet. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week.